worried that I'm failing at this podcast. And I know that's not a very bright beginning to the episode, but let me explain what I mean. I launched the first episode of the Trump Scorecard exactly one week after Donald Trump's inauguration. I created it because I knew, without a doubt, that this was going to be an extraordinary presidency. Obviously, I don't mean extraordinary in the good sense. I knew it would not be a typical Republican presidency, although we would see many of the same terrible policies that damage millions of lives. And we have. But I knew from the moment Trump won the election that his presidency would be a unique threat to everything that makes America unique and decent and good and worth believing in. Trump is a serial liar, of course, but he made it perfectly clear over the course of the campaign the kind of presidency he wanted to have. A presidency based on fear, on hate, on deception. And it started off exactly as we all knew it would. Lies every single day from the press room podium. A ban on Muslim immigration. A stepped-up deportation scheme. Multiple attempts to take health care away from tens of millions of Americans. Attacks on civil rights and voting rights and women's rights and LGBT rights. The encouragement given to outright racists. The denial of science. The deregulation and privatization. And the pettiness. The sheer ugly pettiness of a man who cannot stand any insult, who responds with childish bullying to anyone he disagrees with, a man who cares more about personal political victories than how his policies affect real people. It was everything I imagined it would be, and yet somehow worse than any of us could have imagined. The reality of living through Donald Trump's presidency, the daily horrors and the chaos of an administration that has no idea what it's doing, where the only effective efforts are the ones designed to make our country weaker, less fair, less smart, less just. I say it every week because the entire purpose of this podcast, the one I think I might be failing at, is to communicate one simple message. This is not normal. Hello and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Bernie, and let me explain to you why I think I might be failing. I know this podcast is a small drop in the bucket. On a good week, I have about 2,000 listeners, and I love each and every one of you, and please tell your friends and spread the word. But I never expected it to reach millions of people. It was never about convincing America that Donald Trump's presidency is an historical anomaly and a disaster. I always knew I'd be preaching to the choir with this podcast. It was never intended to persuade Trump voters or even fence-sitters. It was always about reminding us, the people who know what Donald Trump is, that nothing he does or says is normal. It was about refusing to treat him like he was just another conservative politician. And honestly, I don't know if I'm succeeding with that, because the only gauge of success I have is my own sense, and I'm starting to worry that President Donald Trump is starting to seem like the normal state of things. It's very difficult to fight against the plasticity of our own brains. We were built to adapt to the most horrific situations. He has been president for 35 weeks. 
That's 245 days. Of course, our minds have started to adapt to the horrors we see every day. How else would we keep from going mad? It doesn't mean we're still not outraged at the things he does. We are. It just seems like being outraged is now the normal course of things. In the last few weeks, the Earth itself has seemed to writhe in objection to our collective acceptance of our fate. Vicious hurricane followed by another and another and another and earthquakes and floods, biblical horrors worthy of ancient superstition and wrath. And I know that's nonsense. The Earth is not angry Donald Trump is president. And while hurricanes are a good reminder of why his inaction on climate change is so stupid and irresponsible, he is not responsible for the hurricanes any more than the abortionists or LGBT people Jerry Falwell would blame if he were alive today. But we can take these convulsions as signs, even if they aren't intentional ones. We can allow them to remind us that having an ignorant game show host president who only cares about people saying nice things about him on TV is deeply, deeply far from normal. So what I'd like to do this week is have us all reset and recommit. Take a moment to remember what the news looked like before Donald Trump was president. If you're old enough, remember what things were like under George W. Bush when we had a truly awful president who started a war based on a lie, but who was never a threat to our most fundamental democratic norms. Bush wasn't smart, but he had a basic sense of respect for the office and the power that he held. Not Donald Trump, not by a long shot. And on Saturday, he reminded us exactly what it looks like to have a president so deeply removed from the dignity of the presidency that it takes our breath away. Imagine saying this sentence to yourself a, a year or two ago. President Donald Trump retweeted four cheesy, inappropriate right-wing memes. The first three were all from some guy named Trump Team 45. That's the world we live in now. And I want to go through them one by one to remind all of us that, yes, this is not normal. The first meme was a, a map of the Electoral College with every state marked red and the words, Keep it up, libs. This will be 2020. This is standard meme stuff. It had all the classic elements. It was a low-resolution JPEG that should have been saved as a PNG. It had that bold machine font, the white with a black border. I'll link to all these memes on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. It was nothing too offensive, just, you know, extraordinarily unpresidential. Keep it up, libs, and this will be 2020. Wow, Mr. President, you really showed us libs. Uh, next up was a picture of Trump superimposed over a stock photo of arrows and random numbers and charts meant to represent a, a good economy. No words, none. Just here's an image implying you fix the economy, even though you haven't passed any economic legislation and things are moving along the same trend lines they were before you were president. I, I get why some fan of the president would tweet that, but it is such a weird needy thing for him to retweet it. Honestly, it's kind of sad. And the next one is my favorite. It's a train with a Make America Great Again hat. That's it. A train wearing a hat. And the President of the United States felt it was important for millions of Americans to see a picture of a train with his hat on it. I wonder if he made like a choo-choo sound when he hit the retweet button. 
And the last meme he retweeted was where things got a little dark. This wasn't Trump Team 45 anymore. It was from, I kid you not, a guy whose Twitter name is Fucked Up Mind. And it was a gif. Trump swings at a golf ball. Then it cuts to a shot of Hillary Clinton walking into a plane where she stumbles. Only the ball has been edited flying into the shot so it looks like the ball Trump hit knocks her down. And look, who cares that some random right-wing idiot tweets a dumb gif making an image of Trump hitting a golf ball into Clinton? It's stupid, but in the realm of right-wing Twitter, it's pretty tame and not deserving of attention. But the moment Trump retweets it, and when your president retweets do equal endorsement, that moment it becomes a very big deal. Like I said, it's been 245 days and he still doesn't get it. He's still acting like Hillary Clinton is an enemy he has to vanquish. And he's such a petty, childish bully. He has no sense of the scope of his job, the the history. You think of someone like George Washington, who was profoundly aware of how everything he did would set a precedent for the nation and how it would treat its head of state for years to come, hundreds of years to come. Trump is all the way at the other end of that spectrum. He is completely unaware of how the leader of the world's richest and most powerful country should behave, and also unaware of how to act like a decent human being. We've never had a president like Donald J. Trump. I hope to hell we never have another one. He is not normal. This is not normal. And let's make sure we never, ever forget that. Another way this presidency is not normal is the way it has been plunged into controversy from the very beginning. The Russia probes continue to move forward, and it was another week full of developments. The Senate Intelligence Committee canceled a private interview with the president's longtime personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, because Cohen leaked the statement he was going to give to the committee staffers, which was against previously agreed upon rules. So now they're going to make Cohen testify publicly, which should be pretty fascinating because Michael Cohen is, like apparently every lawyer who has ever worked with Donald Trump, a total jackass. That has been genuinely one of the most interesting side stories of the entire Russia saga. Every lawyer involved has done something monumentally stupid and unlawyerly. You might remember when Mark Kasowitz threatened a complete stranger who emailed him, or when Cohen decided to prove he had never been to Prague by tweeting a photo of the front cover of his passport, or when Ty Cobb became the victim of an email prankster who convinced him he was a White House aide. But Cobb did something this week that possibly outdid every other dumb thing he and the entire White House legal team has done yet. Well, except for deciding to represent Donald Trump. Cobb was discussing the case this week with another lawyer on the White House team. He was complaining about White House counsel Don McGahn. He discussed who was responsible for leaks from the White House. He even talked about who was trying to push Jared Kushner out of the administration over the Russia probe. Why do we know this? because he was having this conversation, very loudly, while sitting at a table at a prominent D.C. steakhouse. The table was outside, and sitting nearby, of course, was a New York Times reporter. Easiest scoop that guy has ever gotten, I guarantee you. You would think the President of the United States would have access to the best lawyers available, but Trump has had trouble hiring top D.C. lawyers. Why? Because he doesn't listen to their advice, and he doesn't pay his bills. 
That's why he ends up with goobers like Cohen, Kasowitz, and Cobb. These are guys who became rich and successful because they're blustering jerks. Sound like anyone else you know? But when it comes to defending someone, facing a very, very serious criminal probe by the best investigators and prosecutors in the nation, they are laughably out of their depth. And when I say laughably, I mean you should literally be laughing at these circus clowns because their incompetence is going to seriously fuck up Donald Trump's life. And that is worth celebrating. If you haven't yet called your senators to tell them to oppose the latest Trump care bill, this one called Graham Cassidy, do it today, please. In fact, if you have called them, do it again. I don't have senators, so I need you to call yours twice as much to make up for me. I'm sure I don't need to go too deeply into why this bill is so awful, because frankly, it looks a lot like the other Trump care bills that we've been lucky enough to see fail in the Senate. There's no CBO score yet. There won't be before a vote because... Of course there won't be, but it's virtually guaranteed this would knock millions of people off their health insurance. Not only does it cancel the Medicaid expansion, but it takes money away from the states that did expand Medicaid and gives it to the states that didn't, and then takes that money away from all the states later. And remember, the only reason states chose not to expand Medicaid in the first place was out of partisan spite. They fucked their own citizens just because Democrats were the ones who passed a health care law. That's the only reason. Graham Cassidy also gives states the power to make pre-existing conditions protections virtually meaningless. Insurance companies will be able to jack up rates if you have a pre-existing condition, and honestly, who doesn't, pricing you out of the market. This is a very very bad bill. It is cruel to even consider this bill. And the only reason Republicans are pushing it is because they want to overturn Obamacare. They don't want to fix it. They don't want to provide people with health care. They want to eliminate President Obama's signature legacy because he's a black guy from the other party. People will die and Republicans, including President Trump, just don't care. We've seen a lot of examples where this administration has suppressed, erased, or ignored data it just doesn't like. Climate change, of course, is the best example. But this week, the New York Times acquired a draft report from the Department of Health and Human Services, never released, about a totally different kind of data. The report showed that over a 10-year period, refugees contributed 63 billion dollars more in tax revenue than they cost the government in expenditures. That's to say, it is actually profitable for the government to allow refugees into the country. Needless to say, when your refugee policy is driven by race baiting and ginning up fear of terrorism, this is an inconvenient data point. That's why that report was replaced with one that didn't talk about tax revenues at all. Instead, the release report talked about how refugees need more in HHS services than average Americans, which makes sense because they need assistance when they first arrive. They usually arrive with nothing. They're refugees. But in the long run, they pay for what the government gives them and more on top of that. The administration didn't want that data made public. They didn't want you to know refugees are good for the American economy, that they arrive and they contribute. They want you to think of them as leeches on American society who take your hard-earned tax dollars that should be benefiting you and your family. And they want you to believe they're terrorists who are going to murder you, 
Don't believe them. Reject their hate and their fear-mongering. And don't forget this story. Don't forget, they will lie to keep the most desperately needy people in the world out of our country. That, honestly, is about as ugly as it gets. And you know, it's funny that the Department of Health and Human Services would pretend to care what it costs to take care of refugees, given that Secretary Tom Price doesn't seem to give a shit what he does with your taxpayer dollars anyway. Reports broke this week that Price has a penchant for chartering private jets when he needs to travel and sticking you and me with the bill. Perhaps the most egregious example was when he chartered a flight from D.C.'s Dulles Airport to Philadelphia at the cost of $25,000. Now, if you're not familiar with the D.C. area, let me explain something to you about Dulles International Airport. It sucks. It is extremely far away from the district. In fact, I went ahead and mapped the drive from the Department of Health and Human Services to Dulles Airport, and with zero traffic, it takes 33 minutes. Most trips take longer. An Amtrak from D.C. to Philly takes just two hours, and you go right from the center of one city to the other. And even if you take the Acela, folks, it doesn't cost $25,000. Since May, according to Politico, Price has taken at least 24 private charter jets for travel. The department claimed Price only used the charters when there were no commercial flights available, which was, of course, a straight-up lie. For example, Politico found that a $17,000 chartered trip to Nashville could easily have been replaced with a $202 commercial flight. There's no reason for Price not to fly commercial. His two predecessors under President Obama both did, and they managed to do it without robbing millions of people of their health care like Price and Donald Trump are trying to do. Donald Trump gave a big boy speech at the United Nations this week, where he read very good from the teleprompter, and also said one of the most horrific things he has ever said as president. This. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. There are more than 25 million people in North Korea. Trump said he is willing to totally destroy the country, presumably murdering millions, perhaps most of those people. And that's not all it would do. I talked to Stephen Miles, the director of Win Without War. You might remember I talked to him back in week 11 about Syria. We spoke about what Trump's threats could mean for the world. It's hard to try to get inside Donald Trump's head, and I don't actually recommend anyone attempt such a you know, dangerous endeavor. Um, but we have to assume what he's talking about is nuclear war, nuclear annihilation, um, the, the kind of ability to retaliatory strike against North Korea um, with a massive, massive attack. Uh, and the weapons capability that the United States has in our nuclear arsenal is immense, right? We, we know the power of these weapons are just devastating. Uh, the, the challenge is that it wouldn't just be North Korea. North Koreans obviously are unlikely to sit there and wait for this kind of fate to befall them. They're, unlikely, they're likely to unleash every weapon they have uh, in making the conflict bigger and worse. And that means literally thousands upon thousands of artillery um, and missiles raining down on South Korea, potentially their nuclear arsenal um, you know, being launched against uh, places like Japan and Guam, uh, let alone South Korea. So we are talking about not just a major and devastating war for the people of North Korea, 
Um, but we're talking about essentially a regional um, catastrophe and a level of destruction that we haven't seen since World War II. When I saw him say that, my first thought was, this is going to play nonstop on North Korean TV. And, you know, North Korea's entire regime is built around that sort of fear mongering, right? That yeah. that America and Japan, to a lesser degree, are out to destroy you. So how would how would uh, Kim Jong Un use this to kind of bolster his regime? Yeah, I mean, look, this is this is a gift to his regime. Essentially, they they have survived in power, putting their people through you know abject oppression and 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 just horrific living conditions, under the premise that they're locked in this struggle against the West and in particular the United States. So when the president of the United States gets out there and makes just wildly irresponsible claims like this, it just plays right into their hands. You know, I, I believe I saw today that the North Korean president, uh, Kim Jong-un, said, you know, that, that this only reinforced his, his, the decision, his feeling that the path he was on was the right one. And that's the likely effect here, right? It's very, very clear that this, that this regime in North Korea is pursuing nuclear weapons because it looked at Iraq and Saddam Hussein, it looked at Libya and, um, and Gaddafi, and it said the path to being safe as a regime that the U.S. doesn't like is having nuclear weapons. If you give them up, that's a, that's a surefire path to not lasting very long. So they've been racing for those capabilities and racing for these weapons as a defense against what they view as a potential regime change, whether it was from South Korea, whether it was from America. And so this kind of rhetoric plays right into their hands. It's just fuel for the fire of their propaganda internally. It justifies in their minds everything they've been thinking about why they so desperately need this nuclear capability. And it doesn't do anything to put us on the path we need to be on, which is a diplomatic resolution. You know, diplomacy is hard. It's not easy. Nobody thinks that it's easy. It's easy to stand up in front of the United Nations and make a threat. But the only way this actually gets solved is diplomacy. And what the president said made that much harder. And what would that look like? I mean, you know, we've been pursuing sanctions for years. There have been starts and stops to talk to talks. Obviously, this is not any problem to solve. And like you said, it's hard. So what would it yeah. look like and, and how, what's the, the long-term view? How long would it take? What would a real diplomatic solution to, to North Korea look like? Yeah, look, any diplomatic solution is going to be a combination of carrots and sticks. That's the way diplomacy works. Um, but, and, and this is a particularly difficult situation precisely because of what we were just talking about, you know, the belief in North Korea that this capability, um, this nuclear weapons capacity is, is their defense against regime change. So, you know, the exact contours, you know, they remain murky, but the reality is, is that we've seen progress made. You know, the, the diplomacy during the Clinton administration until it was purposefully abandoned by the Bush administration, right? That, that's a part of this that's lost. The Bush administration walked away from a diplomatic deal that froze North Korea's, North Korea's program way back before where it is now, right? It was a much smaller problem. It was much more manageable. The Bush administration thought, like the Trump administration, that they could just apply pressure. They could make threats. They could call them the axis of evil. They could get what they wanted by being the tough guys in the room. And what we saw was that didn't work, right? The North Koreans only hardened their resolve for these weapons. They raced for the capacity that we've now seen with their six nuclear tests and their growing uh, missile capability. Um, so we know the path that doesn't work. You know, the path towards what does work, it remains to be seen. Kim Jong-un is still a very relatively young leader. The last time there was a serious effort at negotiations, it was under his father. He kind of saw the end of that. 
um, through, but the reality is we don't quite know where he's going to be on the diplomatic stage. We don't quite know what he's going to be like, and we won't know until we pursue it. He's been consolidating his power. He's been fighting a lot of internal struggles in North Korea. But, but you know, now is the time to, to pursue a diplomatic path and see what we can get because, look, the reality is, is that the alternative, we know what the alternative, right? The alternative is a war that could kill millions of people and be utterly, utterly devastating, completely wreck the global economy, completely distract from every other priority our nation has. And so, yeah, it's going to be hard and it's a little uncertain, but it seems to me, and I think anybody who looks at it uh, with a reasonable eye, that's a much better path than the path we're heading down. What could Trump do in the short term? Let's just pretend for a moment that he's a smart, good president. What could he do in the short term to lower the tensions on the peninsula? Yeah, so, you know, look, I, I think I think the thing, first thing you could do is stop making these com- sort of bombastic threats, right? He, he's, this is a guy who's been a schoolyard bully his entire life who thinks that the way you win every fight is by being the bull- biggest bully on the block. That's just not going to work here, right? That, that, that there's clearly not productive uh, way of trying to convince the North Koreans to come to the negotiating table to agree to what they want. You know, some have argued he's pursuing this kind of madman theory that Nixon pursued, which it's worth noting didn't work back then. Um, but again, the North Koreans, you know, whether they think he's a madman or not, they're pretty clear and they're, they're actually pretty rational at what they want here. So it's not, it's not, it's not like bluffing through these threats is going to get him anywhere. It's just going to, they're going to have to, re- they have to respond when he does something like this, when he says these sorts of things. So the first step is he needs to stop that sort of rhetoric. The second thing is we need to make a good faith effort at negotiation. That could happen a number of different ways, right? When Barack Obama began the negotiations process that led to the Iran nuclear agreement, a nuclear agreement that took a country's nuclear program, put it under lock and key, put inspectors on the ground, did it all diplomatically, right? That was a thing a few years ago people thought was impossible, but we did that too. The way that started was with back-channel negotiations, quiet conversations. That's the kind of path the president could be be going on now. Could be starting track two diplomacy. We could, we could be engaging our regional allies more than simply threatening the Chinese, the Chinese and saying they're not doing enough. You know, and, and little little tangible things like making sure we have an ambassador to South Korea, which the last time I checked, we, we still don't. The president may have recently nominated somebody, but here we are in, you know, almost October, right, of this administration, and there's still not an ambassador on the ground in South Korea. You can't have diplomacy if we don't have diplomats in place. So it's the nuts and bolts of governing, the basics of doing this job are what the president has to do. He needs to stop thinking this is a problem he can solve with Twitter. Gave the speech at the UN. What was the international community's reaction to what he said? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you you know you, you kind of quite literally saw some eye rolling in the room, and I think you you figuratively saw a lot of eye rolling from from international partners. You know, the speech itself was so utterly internally inconsistent that I think it was hard for the international community to know what to make of it. Right? People don't respond to this kind of childish rhetoric that we saw. The the president's insistence by reports on using the term "rocket man." You know, it, this isn't a matter of political correctness. This is a matter of understating the severity of the situation in which you're talking about, right? And so I think it went over quite poorly. Uh, and I don't think it brought around a solution that's going to bring the world together in the kind of way that American leadership does best when we make diplomatic agreements, right? When we dealt with the Iranian nuclear program, we brought the world together. 
We worked tirelessly to form a consensus and then build a diplomatic agreement based on that. But in the same speech where the president's making these threats against North Korea, he's telling those very same allies that despite Iran living and abiding by the terms of that deal, despite it working exactly the way it's supposed to, he's going to tear that deal up because he doesn't think it's good. He thinks it's an embarrassment, right? So when he says something like that, he completely undercuts his ability to appear as any sort of good faith negotiator on North Korea. So I think our allies didn't look to didn't look to this speech and see American leadership. They didn't look to this as something that uh, is going to make the world a better place. And I think our adversaries saw someone being childish, being silly, and someone out way way over their depth, right? And so that's not making us any safer or stronger either. Now perhaps the Chinese. You know, I saw there were some announcements today about things the Chinese may or may not be doing. They're responding to actions on the ground. They're they're worried about this threat as well. They're not responding to the president. They're not taking a threat seriously. Um, it's just not it's not a good situation for America, and we're in a dangerous spot. Trump's speech to the General Assembly wasn't the only thing he did at the United Nations this week. He also hosted a lunch with African presidents and foreign ministers. He gave a speech there, too, and he made up an entire country. To be joined by the leaders of Cote d'Ivoire, Ethiopia, Ghana, Guinea, Nambia, Nigeria, Senegal, Uganda, and South Africa. Did you hear that? Nambia? Yeah. That's not a real country. And in case you think he just misspoke, he said it twice. Nambia's health system is increasingly self-sufficient. But honestly, making up a country wasn't the worst thing he did. He also said this. Africa has tremendous business potential. I have so many friends going to your countries trying to get rich. I congratulate you. They're spending a lot of money. That's right. He congratulated Africa on all the white people coming to the continent to get rich. Because that's always gone so well for the people of that continent, hasn't it? Good to know that our president's friends are leading the next era of economic colonialism. That's it for another week with the least normal person in the world as our president. Thank you to Stephen Miller for coming on the podcast. And I also want to give a special thank you to Susan Simpson, who was kind enough to invite me, a total stranger, to her home so I could borrow a cord for my mic to record the podcast. You are the best. Normally, I ask folks to sign up for my Patreon, but with everything horrible going on in the world, do me a favor, spend your money helping the people in Houston, Florida, Mexico, Puerto Rico, or any of the other areas devastated by natural disasters this week. I'll be back to beg you for money another time. Don't forget, I've got links to all the stories I've covered in today's podcast on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. You can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard. Find me on Twitter, at Jesse Burney, and write me a nice message at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself. The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal. Normal.